how do you price an ad on your channel? That's probably the most common question we get from other creators. And it was the biggest question we had when we first started on YouTube. So we're hosting a live workshop on how to price yourself. This is everything that we've learned in the past 13 years of being on YouTube and our simple three-step process that'll help you develop concrete pricing. So if you wanna join us for this live session, just go to colinandsamir.com slash live. Enter your email and you'll get all the information about our live event on May 9th. All right, hope you enjoy this episode of The Colin and Samir Show. This week on The Colin and Samir Podcast, we're joined by a very unique guest. His name is Houston Kraft, and he's a storyteller and a kindness advocate. Houston uses his storytelling abilities to spread stories about empathy, kindness, and love, all with the goal of giving people the tools to practice more of these emotions on a day-to-day basis. He travels the country doing talks and workshops, and we wanted to bring you this conversation during the week of Valentine's Day, a week where we hear a lot about love of a specific kind. There are actually many different varieties of love, and more importantly, empathy. Personally, I believe that empathy is one of the most important emotions to exercise if you're trying to connect with others, whether that's through a business, a relationship, through content, or just through day-to-day communication. Empathy is incredibly important. Also, Colin was busy editing on the day that we recorded this podcast, so this conversation is just between myself and Houston. He's a great storyteller, and he ends this podcast with one of the more powerful stories I've heard from him. We also have some surprise guests pop in while we're recording, so stay tuned for that and expect some interruptions towards the end of the podcast. All right, we hope you enjoy this special edition of the Colin and Samir podcast featuring Houston Craft. All right, man. I've been wanting to have this conversation for a while. I think we've been trying to plan this for months. Yeah. I just wanted to see you for months. Yeah, that's true. And now we're here. I love a good excuse. So I don't remember exactly how we first met. Maybe over oysters in Yes Theory's backyard. That's <laughs> Yeah, that's how most people meet. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm not a, I'm not a fan of oysters at all. Yeah, these ones were particularly delicious only because of circumstance. Yes, because of the company. Yeah. Yeah. But after that, I actually remember specifically, you know, after hanging out a little bit, you asked me to come to a empathy workshop (laughs) and I was, it was very close to my house. So it's like, absolutely. But my first reaction was what is an empathy workshop and what could that (laughs) possibly be? Right? Like how, how much, I feel like I'm an empathetic guy. How much could I learn about empathy or what what can I actually Mm. do? Um, But the experience sticks in my mind as one of the most transformative evenings of my 20s. Hmm. And I remember going home and and telling my girlfriend about it and bringing her to another one of your events and just becoming like very infatuated with your message, your storytelling ability, your skill, like everything about it. And so I thought this week was a really special week to have you on to talk about love, empathy, and everything you do. Um, So yeah, I wanted to... I wanted to kind of start with just some a better understanding of what exactly it is you do. Because I actually didn't know until I showed up to your workshop. <laughs> and I probably can't do a good job of contextualizing it. Sure, so, man. Yeah. Well, thank you for the, the high praise. That's kind. I, uh, I don't know what, what I do 100% either, which I think that's healthy. I think, what is that, that old like video... 
everyone should wear sunscreen. Do you remember that old clip? What? Yeah. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> what like are you this, talking about? There's like this old clip that is like this simple message. And the, the main theme is everyone should wear sunscreen. But there's also all these like little other life nuggets. And one of them is uh, some of the most interesting people I know have no idea what they want to do, whether that's at their 20s or their 40s. I think it's just the, the theme is curiosity and exploration. We'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> the moral is wear sunscreen. <laughs> the main moral, yeah, okay. wear sunscreen. Um, yeah, the the work I do, I uh, I'm a, a speaker, a storyteller. I, I write curriculum and, and work with educators in schools. Uh, and I'm, my main title is a kindness advocate. That's at least how I like to think about it. Um, so. For many years, I've I've worked I've spoken in schools, mostly high schools and middle schools. Um, I've had a chance to work with about 600 schools all around the world, uh, assemblies and workshops talking about compassion and kindness and love. Uh, and then more recently, I started something called Character Strong, that uh, its goal is to help schools more effectively teach things like empathy, the social emotional skills, the character things, the things that make us not just good students but good people. Um, so we work with educators and we provide curriculum in schools to help do that. So I, I tell stories, I wander around to different stages. And then um, my favorite thing to do is build tools for educators to do this otherwise sort of abstract work in a really practical, effective, loving way. It's really interesting. You, you mentioned telling stories. And, and I thought one of the most impactful things of coming to your workshop was your storytelling ability. And, and something that I, the first thing I told Colin when I came out of it was, man, I thought that's what I did. Like mm -hmm. I thought I was a storyteller and I recognized that, you know, through the craft of editing and, and creating videos, like we are able to piece together a story, but your ability to do it live really fascinated me. And, you know, Colin and I have some opportunities in September. We're going to uh, Germany to do some, some speaking and I draw so much inspiration from the way that you've done it. Um, but that that live storytelling and storytelling as a tool to actually um, affect change is a lot of our goal. Mm -hmm. um, you use it in a, in a, in a really um, interesting way and you, you, know, you build tools to actually have people take action as well. So one of the more impactful stories you told to help me understand what empathy means uh, was on that night. And empathy for me has been such an important element of uh, growing into being like a, 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 an entrepreneur, a businessman. Like if you have any idea that you want to spread to the world, you have to have a very deep understanding of the people on the other side, right? Mm. So whether that's, you know, you want to be an entrepreneur or you just like, we want to be uh, a good friend or you want to be an effective communicator, like empathy is actually the most important thing. Having a deep mm. understanding of the person on the other side. You told a story that described empathy um, that night, and it was a personal experience of yours, and I'd love for you to tell that story on the podcast because that opened my eyes to really the, the, the actual definition of the word. Yeah. Yeah, that, well, I mean, a lot of the, like, the, the inspiration or the, the thrust of my work comes from a bunch of stories in our life, right? Stories sort of shape our our direction. And for me, one of the stories that I lived inside of was being on an airplane many years ago, sitting next to this woman that I admittedly did not want to talk to. <laughs> uh, 
and who wanted to talk to me anyways. Uh, and she started asking me about what I did. And I shared with her that I worked in schools uh, speaking about kindness. And she, she kind of got quickly deadly serious and uh, shared with me that kindness was really important to her. I was like, yeah, no, it's a great thing. And I tried to sort of play it off because I wanted to go back to listening to music. And, uh, and then she shared with me a story of, of her being on an airplane. Um, the last time she was before her and I met, she was on this, this airplane only because she'd gotten a phone call early in the morning from her, from her dad's doctor. She said she woke up to the phone call and her dad's doctor basically said that wherever she was in the world, however quickly she get she could get to Phoenix, Arizona, the better. They were taking the, her dad to the hospital. They didn't exactly know what was going on, um, but come quick. <laughs> and so she she says, Houston, I didn't even pack a bag. Right? I sped to the airport, bought the first plane ticket she should, she could get on, and she sits down on this plane and she's about to turn her phone off, and she gets another phone call from the doctor explaining that her dad had passed away. And she literally says to me, Houston, I'm on my way. <laughs> you know, I'm on my way to go and see my dad when I learned that I lost him. And then she has to sit next to strangers for three hours. And she, she said she sat there in silence. She was in shock. And finally she lands in Arizona, walks off the plane, just falls down, you know. And the line that stood out to me was, she goes, Houston, you ever get news so bad your body stops working right? And she goes, I just put my head in my hands and I wept. And uh, she jokes that she's not a quiet crier. <laughs> she's not a pretty crier. Right? This, is an, uh, this is a woman obviously in need. And she, she looks right at me on this plane while, we're, while she's sharing the story. And she says, Houston, you want to know why kindness is so important to me? She goes, I sat in that airport for two hours that day, crying on the worst day of my life. And she goes, if I had to guess, there are probably 3,000 people walking by, you know, going to their plane or getting off their plane. She goes, two hours, 3,000 people and not one. Not a single person stopped. And she goes, you have no idea how much I could have used an act of kindness that day. And the final thing she said that has stuck with me ever since is, she goes, you know what I realized that day in the airport is that kindness isn't normal. That it's not normal in our world to be kind. And that, uh, you know, I think at first I was sort of moved to like argue with her, but I didn't have a good argument. Uh, and that sentence to me is fairly devastating. Um, partially because I think there's this weird gap in our world between what we what we claim is important and what we actually do for each other. You know, like the the things that we know are good versus the things we're actually good at. <laughs> And there's this gap. For me personally, I believe in kindness. And uh, I don't think I would have stopped to help. My guess is you ask any of the 3,000 people walking by Helga in the airport if they believe in kindness. The answer is yes. So there's like this gap between, between what we know is, is worthwhile and, and, and what we actually do. And, and I think part of what's in that gap, to me, you know, one of the questions I, I think about often is like, what gets in my way? as someone that believes in this thing, what gets in the way between my belief and my practice? And, and among those things is, is this skill of empathy, right? Kindness is this like sort of lovely abstract concept. And what we don't, I don't think what we don't talk about enough is that kindness actually requires a whole lot of skills. You know, I think kindness 
to practice it well requires a, a skill of listening. I think it requires a, a resilience to show up and be kind to people that aren't kind to you or to show up after you've been rejected or to show up even though you feel fear failure, like to show up and be kind requires a level of grit. I think, I think kindness requires the skill of emotional regulation, right? Like to know what you're feeling and even when you're feeling a tough feeling or a challenging feeling to still choose a choice when you don't feel like it is like that social emotional skill of emotional regulation and and perhaps the biggest one of all is empathy because Helga doesn't need me to solve any problems that day you know what Helga actually needs from me is to to sit with her in her suffering right to me empathy is being with being with a person in whatever they're at and and in order to do that, you have to have some level of access to those feelings yourself, right? It doesn't mean you have to, and I think sometimes empathy gets this rep for being like, oh, you have to have lived it to give it. But that, I disagree. You know, to me, empathy is intentional imagination. It's choosing to imagine that feeling, even if you haven't lived the same circumstance, to figuring out, you know, she's suffering. What does loss feel like to me? And can I be with her in that loss? And, you know, full transparency for me, empathy is a skill I still don't think I'm super competent at, which is why, personally, when I ask myself, would I have stopped that day with Helga? My answer more often than not is no. Yeah, I mean, first of all, thanks for telling the story. I, I, I love that story. And when I sat there and heard it, I also you know, you go deep inside of yourself when you hear that. Wait a second. Would, would I have stopped? Probably not, um, is, is my answer. And I, I think about also, if I were to stop, I recognize that day that I don't think I would have known exactly what to do outside of, you know, maybe like try and sink into a place for me where I experienced sadness or loss and just, you know, be there and trying to offer some words. But I recognized how much I didn't know about it. And again, I believe in kindness. I believe, I think I do. I would like to consider myself that kind of person. But, you know, having the practical skill set to exercise. Now, I think one thing that's, I'm curious to hear your perspective on, obviously you're now, you know, creating tools and, and speaking about um, kindness and, and things like this is today in, in 2019, you know, there's, there's the airport, which Helga was at, and now there's the whole like cyberspace, right? Like there's there's the internet, there's um, social media platforms where, um, you know, how do you how do you exercise kindness on those kind of platforms? And and I guess how does that play into some of the stuff you're doing, especially working with a younger generation that's growing up maybe a little bit more disconnected and mm. and more connected into their the cyberspace. Yeah, I mean. The, the statistic that is always shocking to me that I heard about a year ago was, is that the average student today has as much anxiety as the average psychiatric patient from the 1950s. Whoa. So anxiety is going up and we could spend a whole podcast talking about why anxiety is increasing in our world and our culture. It's a culture of achievement. We're told to hustle. We're told to be relentless. We're, we're, supposed to build this personal brand and we're always being observed social media is this platform where we're in a state of constant comparison we're looking at everyone's highlight reels while we're living our own real life that's full of a lot more ups and downs so there's an infinite reason why i think anxiety has gone up 
and the, the challenge with that, uh, Dr. Michelle Borba, she wrote this book called Unselfie, and she calls it the empathy gap. She, basically, she says, as anxiety goes up, empathy goes down. Mm. Makes sense, right? The more worried I am about what's going on in my life, the harder time I have worrying about what's going on in yours. And so how do we, I don't know, how do we flip that script or how do we start to close that empathy gap? Uh, I think in in part is, well, I would say what I, I sense is a general movement in our culture, in our generation of like more vulnerable, authentic sharing, right? To, to not constantly promote the highlight reel and just show our successes, but to, to demonstrate what failure looks like in action and to, to be honest in what that failure felt like and, and to promote actually, you know, to promote what failure is because the number one indicator of success for people you know, in schools isn't GPA or IQ or SAT. The number one indicator is resilience. And resilience is simply the ability to experience failure and learn from it. And our culture, like, I think we're moving in the direction that, like, celebrates failure, but it's still, I mean, the number of students that feel terrified of failure because the pressure to achieve is so high. So through social media, I think um, I'm excited because I sense a movement towards vulnerability, towards more authentic conversations, towards content that's driven more by story. Uh, I, I think the, the other piece of it is, uh, another movement that I think is just beginning, which is like the self-care, you mm -hmm. know, you see more and more creators who are like, yeah, this like posting multiple times a week is, is purely exhausting. You know, it, it doesn't actually promote creativity. You know, we're just like checking things off and you know, neuroscience would tell us that boredom is actually, we don't let ourselves be bored anymore. <laughs> yeah. And boredom actually creates creativity and empathy in your brain. Do you listen? Do you listen to or read Ryan Holiday at all? I know him. I don't you read know. that much. Okay, yeah. so I I just listen. He has a podcast called The Daily Stoic. It's like mm -hmm. three yeah. minutes every morning. It's really short. And he just one of the more recent episodes was about filling the void, and just talking about how like how it's okay to actually fill the void with thoughts, and you know it's so normal now to fill any sort of free moment with scrolling or in some sort of input of of content, right? Um, and that just like so much input with no rest or no like boredom. And another writer I really like is Seth Godin, dude, mm -hmm. his stuff. So he, he actually said something about um, he was trying to make a big decision and he just he drove himself out to Joshua Tree alone without any devices to get bored enough to be able to make the decision. Mm, that's so good. Because he was like, I can't have any, you know, additional input. I have to get myself bored enough to be creative and come up with this decision. Yeah. And, and that's a really interesting uh, thing for me is just how much stimulation uh, we have, we require, and that we use to to fill voids. And it, it probably reduces our ability to have a deep understanding of of others. Yeah. And even ourselves. Right? Yeah. A thousand. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, when we talk about empathy, that's the gateway to empathy is, you know, the gateway to understanding other people is is to have some level of understanding of yourself. It's hard to identify an emotion in another that you can't be within in yourself. So let's talk about what you had mentioned with um, Helga, like that that day at the airport. Like, how how do you now, through your practice and through understanding um, empathy, like what do you suggest or what is the um, practice of empathy in that instance? 
Um, and then what is the practice of empathy? Maybe not in such a drastic scenario, but in a more day-to-day scenario, what does it look like? Yeah. The, the practice of empathy, um, it is, you know, in that scenario, Helga needs me to just show up and, and, you know, to use Venice terminology, hold space, right. To create the container for someone to feel that emotion in a big way. Um, because typically when we're feeling really big things, especially hard things, it tends to feel lonely and empathy to me. I always love the visual of someone just like stepping in next to you underneath a really heavy box or stone that you're trying to carry and you just have another pair of hands and you don't have to say anything. It's just like the weight feels a little bit lighter uh, and you feel a little bit less alone, which is a gift. It's a gift in a culture where, you know, we're, we're built to be relational, but the data would tell us are more isolated and lonely than ever. So empathy to me is one of those missing ingredients and that's in, in a huge way Helga needs someone who's quote unquote strong enough to carry that whole that load with her um in fact that's sort of like the premise of character strong is anytime we align our intentions to our actions we're exercising our willpower right and the research would tell us that willpower isn't a skill so much as it is a muscle which means it can get exhausted and the more choices that we make that feel hard or, or challenging or go against what we're feeling in that moment, the more exhausted that willpower gets. And when we exhaust our willpower, we start to act in ways that aren't in alignment with maybe what we want to be. And we just start to act on our feelings. And so character strong, I suppose the, the premise of it is the only way that you become capable of lifting a quote unquote hundred pound moment of empathy is if you do the little work of lifting five or 10 or 15 daily, you know, it's, it's like in the seemingly inconsequential daily moments, that's when like the actual work happens that prepare you for the big moments. All of us would love to help Helga, but not all of us have invested the time in the sort of a daily sense to, to, to be strong enough. That's really what it is. 3000 people walk by, not because they want to, but because they're not strong enough. Mm. And they're not conscious that they're not strong enough. They just, that we avoid the things that we don't feel capable of doing, right? I, if I walk by a machine that has too much weight on it in the gym, I'm not going to try to lift it. And the same thing's true sort of unconsciously with empathy. So to me, like the daily empathy practice, you know, part of it is, is an emotional awareness. So how often am I f- being present with myself? Mindful moments. For some people, that's meditation. For some people, it's jotting it down. For me only recently I've just tried to be more aware of labeling feelings throughout the day with a bigger vocabulary than maybe I used to have with what emotions were, you know, the four basic ones that we experience are mad, sad, glad, and afraid. afraid. I just like to, (laughs) you like to rhyme it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate Uh, that. (laughs) Helps me remember. (laughs) Cause I, you know, for, I always, I haven't always felt emotionally intelligent and I still have a ton of, long way to go. But, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, I'm tired or I'm sad or I'm frustrated. But there's like so many beautiful words in between all those things. So part of my daily practice is like, is saying the right thing for the right moment, right? Like, am I tired or am I exhausted? Am I drained? Am I fatigued? Right? And like those things are different things. And to be able to label them with consistency 
even internally creates an awareness of what you're feeling so that you can better identify it in others. Mm. I think one of my other sort of daily practices, especially in interacting with people, I think probably the most key ingredient to empathy is to, to broaden our understanding. And one of my favorite quotes that I heard about a year ago that messes me up every time I think about it is life is our awareness, which means the size of our life is as big as everything we are aware of. So if there are things that we don't know that we don't know, they literally don't exist to us. Mm. So if you picture yourself in the center of this like circle and you picture that anything inside that circle is what we're aware of, that is literally the entirety of our life. Anything outside of that circle does not exist to us. So what I love about empathy and the process of building empathy, the visual I like to think of in my brain is it actually makes my life bigger because empathy is rooted in understanding. And the way that we build understanding with people is to ask questions that we don't know the answers to, right? Questions that illuminate things about other people that in turn and somehow teaches us something about ourselves, right? So like the foundational skill of empathy to me then is asking good questions and then trying, listening well to people's answers. And I think in a culture that lives in bite-sized, tweet-sized like things, sometimes um, I really think asking good questions is a vocabulary that many of us weren't equipped with in school and we've had to figure it out as we go. And it's like, the average dinner party, the average going out night isn't instructive <laughs> in like the question asking skill set. And so I suppose one of my other practices is just trying to be more intentional with the questions I ask. Mm. It's, it's a, a topic of conversation that's come up recently in my life is one of the weird unspoken byproducts of getting older for me is the recognition of how often we repeat certain things in our life. You know, the number of times I get asked the question, so how did you get into what you do? Yeah. And I have an answer. And I've said the answer probably over 500 times now. I'm, I'm going to ask you that eventually. Yeah, we'll get yeah, there. Yeah, we'll get sure. there. Sure. I'm yeah. ready for uh, it. I can't wait. <laughs> but isn't that interesting? Like, yeah, the, interesting. Think about the number of things that you and I get asked that we've said before. Yeah. And we just go into this like autopilot response, which in those moments, we're not learning much, right? Because mm. it's something we know. It's a known quantity. Versus asking a question of someone else that's like new, like a question, don't you love questions that are new for both people involved? Yes. Right. So that I, I really the, do. The first time you're answering and the first time that I'm hearing and like, what a gift. You said something there about asking good questions and just being a good listener. And I would say that I didn't know that I wasn't either of those until we started this podcast because I started listening back to episodes and recognizing that. While the other guest was talking, I wasn't actually listening that well because I would just ask a totally off-topic question <laughs> afterwards. And I was listening back and I was like, wait a second, there was something, they just said something that would have led me into a really interesting conversation, but I was so caught up with what my next question was that I was barely reacting to them. And I think that, that I've, I recognized in that moment that there's probably been a lot of my life where I've had conversations like that too, where I was so excited to say my next thing <laughs> yeah. that I wasn't even listening to what they were saying. Um, so I think that's been an, a really interesting practice for me to actually have to sink in. And maybe I had something in mind that I was going to ask you, but you just said something that I had to be attentive to. And then, you know, I want to go in that direction, not mm. my direction. Yeah. You know? And so that, that, that's a really, uh, 
new thing for me that I didn't know was new. Yeah. I had no idea until I started this podcast that that was a thing. No, I think that's so. like really, I think great conversation is like shared direction, right? Where it's like not one person or one way. It's like, because, because of the organic nature of what's happening, like we go to a totally different place than mm -hmm. either of us anticipated. And that's like, again, back to that, like life is awareness thing. Mm. We go to a place that is not a part of the circle, which means our life gets bigger. Right. So I'm, I'm pretty new to focusing on myself. Now I, I've, I've always been into, you know, like working out, like taking care of myself, but like meditation and journaling are both very new things in my life in the past year. And they're life-changing for me. Mm. Like the understanding of self um, is something that I'm like super interested in. Now, when did that awareness start for you? How did you, it's hard for me to imagine when I was in high school, having any sort of awareness, even to consider um, investing my time in something like kindness. You know, I was very invested in, in myself. I was insecure. I was trying to make friends. I was trying to be popular. Like all of those different things that are happening in high school. I mean, forget the fact that I didn't even have social media around at that time. Um, like how, how did you sink into this career and this interest? And how did you like, how did that happen at, at an early age for you? Yeah, that's, it's interesting. Like as you finished that question, cause I was thinking about, you weren't uh, listening to my question. You were yeah, just thinking no, about yeah. what you were going to say next. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> um, no, I, 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 until the very end, I was thinking about, I mean, cause it, in all honesty, I don't think I have found some of these, like at least those personal practices that you were referencing until much, much recently, much more recently. Um, you know, how I got into speaking about kindness, believing in kindness is a byproduct of, of, of listening to stories that inspired me. I grew up in Washington. I went to, you know, I was involved in student leadership type things and involved in theater. So theater to me, I, I grew to love because of its storytelling and because I liked the attention and I, and leadership, I grew attached to mainly because I went to this, this camp in Washington where this guy, John, who is actually my co-founder now in, in Character Strong, but at the time, he was a total stranger to me on stage, and he was like, he was telling stories. His story was being a student leader in school and uh, choosing to show up to the front door of his school for an entire school year, 180 straight school days. He would get to school an hour early, and he would hold the door open. And he started talking about how love, leadership was about our capacity to love, and more than anything, our capacity to like serve people with consistency and how that builds trust and, and why it makes people feel important. And, and all those paradigm shifts inspired me to go back to my school and start a club my senior year that was focused on acts of kindness. It's called rake random acts of kindness, et cetera. We'd get together every week and we, the only two rules of the club were meet someone new and leave them better than you found them. And we did that our whole senior year. And it sparked some amazing conversations and friendships and the experience of like giving kindness to others, you know, the whole premise of like selfish altruism, you can't get away from like the fact that it feels good to do good for others. And I became hooked on that. And I suppose my, my career has been premised upon this desire to give to others the gift that was given to me, which is the experience of giving kindness and how much it frees you from the desire to be like happy for yourself all the time, 
right? That sort of exhaustive seeking of happiness for you when the reality is like the giving of that thing to others is so much bigger than you. Another one of my favorite quotes, how much bigger your life gets when you make yourself smaller in it. Mm. And that's the gift of, it's the gift of kindness, right? Because kindness is that proactive pursuit to do something good. And it means you have to look for it. It means you have to find opportunities to celebrate people. And so all that to say, you know, this started for me because I was inspired by story. Um, but maybe also a partial answer to your question. I didn't start figuring out some of that more personal reflective stuff uh, until really last year. Uh, and it was spurred by losing a relationship in my life and the recognition that I was like really good at like telling stories to others and, and giving to others and uh, hadn't found any sort of capacity to balance that within myself or or even with some people close to me. So, you know, we can talk about, we can be great at like these things in concept. We can be great at sharing the stories of these things, but I'm the same way that my personal sort of practice has been much more recent. So I have two things for you. One, are we going to graze over the fact that you got expelled? <laughs> we, we could, we, or we could ungraze. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I just was doing some research, and I I yeah. read that on your website, and I was like, "What?" Yeah, and then it said, uh, "Which is a great line." So much, uh, I I drew a lot of inspiration from it for like a, a personal website. Is um, you said like, "I'll tell you the story when we meet." Yeah. So here we are. Is that <laughs> offer on the table, or is that not? A- oh, a thousand percent. Yeah, it's a fun story. Why don't we start there, and then I'll. I'll- yeah carry on some follow-up questions uh in seventh grade i brought a gun to school and uh what like a real one an airsoft gun okay got it story to, you gotta start dramatic yeah this that is was critical. my bad I, totally, I just crushed all the mystery there no it's Ugh. good i was getting to that quickly okay. no i was like i don't know why i had went through a small phase of being into airsoft guns went over to my friend's house one day we played in his backyard for a couple hours i packed everything into my bag Went home, did my homework. My mom packed my lunch, as she did every day, uh, the next morning and didn't see the airsoft gun that remained in the bottom of my bag. So I got to school, put everything in my locker and found it and had, you know, just like anxiety and sweating. And I look at my friend and I say, I have, I brought an airsoft gun to school. Like I have to call my mom and this girl, Taylor, Taylor, (laughs) She overheard the conversation and went and told the principal. Oof. And Mr. Hart comes storming down the hallway and he walks up to me. And I'm, by the way, like, I'm a good kid. Like, honors class is 4.0, involved leadership. How old are you? Oh, you're seventh grade. So you're seventh grade. Yeah, 11, yeah. 12. Terrifying. Uh, terrifying. And Mr. Hart walks up and he goes, Houston, do you have a gun in your backpack? And I go, uh, uh, you know, like, I'm stammering over it. Pulls me back into the office like an idiot. I'd taken out the little orange thing in the front. So he pulls it out. It looks like a handgun. Oof. My parents show up and they're crying. And um, they ended up expelling me for a full calendar year out of the school because they had to make an example of no tolerance. This wasn't too, too long after Columbine. So, mm. you know, the premise that I was a good kid didn't matter. It's, you can't bring a gun to school. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so I appealed it Had all kinds of people come and speak on my behalf. It was a whole process and ended up, ended up getting expelled for two months. 
And during that time, I was able to keep up with most of my classes except for math. And um, I just couldn't keep up with math. So to make a long story a little bit longer, I, I took a, I ended up retaking math the next year, but because I didn't want to take the same class I'd taken before, I took this like new experimental curriculum and it was terrible. Hated it. I used to really kind of like life, like math. This curriculum made me like not like it. And I ended up stopping taking math my sophomore year of high school as a result. And because I did that, it gave me room in my schedule to join student leadership and uh, theater and debate. And uh, I say all that because those are all the things that I do now. (laughs) And so because of this frustrating, what seemed like the end of the world at the time event, uh, way down the road and end up creating space in my life for something that I love and much more beautiful than the path I'm on now. So I finished college and went back to Seattle and was out one night and I ran into Taylor, Taylor, Taylor. (laughs) And uh, I gave her a big hug and thanked her for putting me on a different path. When you went back to school though, how did you, did you interact? Were you angry at Taylor? No. I mean, yeah, probably my middle school version. I'm not angry at her now. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. But yeah, you know, Taylor and I, we, we probably stared hard at each other across the cafeteria a few times. Yeah. But good on Taylor though. Okay. Good on Taylor. You see something, say something. Absolutely. It's the TSA golden yeah, child. Not even, not even a question. <laughs> well, that's interesting. That's, that's, uh, it's interesting that that moment was so, uh, pivotal that yeah. it actually led to like where you are today. That's as, really fascinating. As most of the tough stuff in our life does. So at what point do you, to, and I, I want to get back into like personal development, but at what point do you take the, you know, the, the random acts of kindness, now your love for theater and you re, you recognize, wait a second, I could, I could build this into something <laughs> like, how, how does that? Cause I think again, like I was in a awesome club in high school called peer support. It was like mm-hmm. so cool at my high school. We did this, we did groups of people and we all talked in like a closed door setting and you could share anything and the group would like it was a like group therapy essentially yeah it was uh one of the more like interesting things that that was at my high school it was so cool yeah. it was all students but like you know i loved it i thought it was amazing i wanted to be in, as involved as possible um i also loved being on camera i also loved making videos i never connected the dots there i never <laughs> thought that that would you know yeah so i'm just curious like how did how did those two things uh, or all of those things connect? Yeah, I um, my friend Esteban makes a good joke about me. He says Houston saw someone hugging when he was seven and said, "I could monetize that." <laughs> kindness as a job is weird. Um, yeah, I I you know because I did theater, I did want to pursue the acting thing for a while. Came to L.A. I was like 19 and it just didn't make sense. And to be really honest, I just don't think I have the stomach for that level of rejection. Although there's probably lots of middle school and high school kids that are subconsciously judging me anytime I go to speak at a school. <laughs> but the like outright rejection, I couldn't handle. How long did you did you like seriously pursue it here in LA? Uh, I just, I came up for a summer and then I was going to do a year abroad during college to study film. Mm. And uh, sort of last minute, um, here's another like, what seemed like a devastating event last minute. I was supposed to study abroad for a year in Prague and uh, 
last minute sort of discovered the program was a sham. I didn't have classes signed up for huh. it. I didn't have housing. So I ended up taking the year off instead. And I was like, what am I going to do it's with like myself? It's like the fire Festival of... It is the fire Festival <laughs> of Film Programs in Prague. <laughs> yeah, it's a direct correlation. <laughs> <laughs> the metaphor is apt. Um, yeah, I, so I took this year off and I was like, okay, I guess I'll go back to LA and try the acting thing. And a friend that I'd met at that camp where I met John and was sort of inspired around this whole concept in the first place. I still work at that camp every summer. I know you have a camp that's important mm-hmm. to you too. Mm-hmm. Um, summer camp's the best. Uh, I, this guy who I met at camp was like, hey, I'm doing this internship with this company. It's right up your alley. You should come check it out. So I showed up and uh, the company that, it was called Ignite and they, they did mentorship programs in high schools and middle schools. So basically their job was to, to train upperclassmen kids to be role models for underclassmen. And I show up and I was, I was, it was a training day, a full day training for these like juniors and seniors at a high school. And the idea was like to teach them experiential learning activities so that they could go and facilitate meaningful, tough conversations with these like incoming freshmen they were going to have. And I showed up and it was just like, it was theater plus camp, right? I was like, I got to be on stage. I was telling stories, but I was also like teaching, you know, I was like facilitating activities that talked about stuff that was important to me. And at the end of the day, the people that ran the company were like, you need to come hang with us, hang out with us longer. Mm. So that whole year I ended up working for that company and traveling around the States, uh, doing that basically full time working with, with mostly high school age students to, to teach them how to be role models for these underclassmen. And I fell in love with it. And, uh, I feel like along the way realized that I had a, a skill for it the storytelling portion and my willingness to be goofy and and playful and these games that like meant something and went back to college and sat down in the career planning center, which I don't know if that stuff works for a lot of people, especially when I was like, Hey, I want to talk about love (laughs) for a living. And the guy was like, I know just the person like, really? (laughs) His name's Dighton Spooner connected me to a guy named, I know Dighton. He used to run like miniseries at CBS or something, went wow. out to Maine to Bowdoin College and uh, gets to serve kids figuring out their passion. And Dighton connected me to a guy named Tyler, who's been a youth speaker for 30 years. Um, he's one of the, if not the finest storyteller I've ever met. And we got put in touch because of Dighton. And um, as I finished college, I flew out to LA. He lives in Laguna. And I met with Tyler and I showed him some videos of me working with kids and he was like, I want to help. And so for that whole first year, he taught me how to like go to schools and do assemblies. And um, I credit him in huge ways with helping me figure out how to tell meaningful stories and just the whole, right? Like the, the concept that it is a business, like to go to these schools and to how do you get into these conferences that works with educators and those educators who are going to find you and you know, that first year I spent a lot of time just volunteering in leadership classrooms for an hour and just getting a ton of feedback. I mean, like what made sense to you? What didn't? And it was a lot of those same schools that I showed up for free that a year later was the first assemblies that I spoke at. And in fact, the very first person that ever paid me to speak was John Norland, who's now my co-founder in Character Strong. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. There's so much to pull from what you just said. I, I, I pull so much from just my experience and the experience of, uh, I think a lot of the people who listen to this podcast, people who are trying to pave their own path, like create a job and, and, and 
manifest it. Mm. And I think it's really interesting that you essentially just were very clear and were able to just declare, I think like, this is what I want to do. Is there someone out there who can help? Yeah. And, uh, I think it can feel very isolating as well to have an idea and try and make it happen. Especially if it's not a, a path that's been paved before. Sure. If it's not a path that's, you know, natural, like mm-hmm. or quote unquote, or there's been some sort of roadmap. Um, cause that's, you know, you can plug in that into a, into a roadmap. Like I want to speak about love. There's, there's a path of being a speaker and an educator and stuff like that. But, sure. um, I find that to be very, it takes a lot of guts to, to do that because it can be very isolating. Uh, but surrounding yourself with people who can help you is like so important. I don't think I realized that at a young age. I, I always thought like the, the entrepreneur should be like alone figuring it out. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like just grinding it out on their yeah. own and, and just trying to make it happen. And like the most impressive people didn't have people around them. Like they were like solo right. entrepreneurs. Yeah. They figured it out all on their I, own. Yeah. yeah not but the it, case. <laughs> you know, it all, uh, uh, it, it all comes down to storytelling and, and a lot that I realized now and later in my life is just, it, it's actually so much about the stories you tell yourself. Yeah. And like, if you just allow like, okay, actually I should turn and ask for help. Cause that's, that would make sense here. Like that's a, that's a good mm. path to figure out what's next for me. Um, that's a really powerful thing Yeah, to do. Yeah. Everyone, <laughs> the mentorship piece, uh, I think in order to do that well, I think it requires humility. In order to do that well, I think it requires a ton of gratitude. I express gratitude to Tyler with regularity. I'm like, mm. this dude, I mean, he's been huge in my life. And the best compliment he ever gave me was, you ask you ask for advice and then you actually take it. Right? So it's like, it's not just like an exercise and like just asking everyone like, what should I do? But it's like the discipline of actually putting it in action is the... For some people, that's the, the the gap, I think. It's like, oh, I know what I need to do and then the, the discipline to actually execute. Um, so I feel really grateful to Tyler for uh, for sharing wisdom, right? Sharing mm. his life experience to speak into my own. Um, and if there's one thing that I'd be like proud of myself is like the execution, doing the actual thing. Totally. So So we had talked about empathy starting with a deep understanding of yourself. Um, we talked about different, you know, practices that, that we do to actually have that understanding, but I'm curious in those quote unquote low moments, getting expelled from school, um, not getting to go to Prague in the moment, you know, now when you look back on it, you can understand, wow, those really led me to where I am today. But how do you, um, sink in and deal with some of those moments that might not be so favorable to you or might feel like failures? Um, like, do you have a understanding of how that happens in the future for you? Or like, what point do you sink sink into to understand them as maybe not so negative? Hmm. Does that make sense? Does that question make sense? Yeah. Like the, the reframing, what reframing process do I walk through with? Exactly. Cause I think it's so normal. Like I think to sign up for anything you're like sign up for acting and you're, Without question, I can tell you, you're going to experience rejection and probably failure. <laughs> Sign up to be an entrepreneur. It's not even a question. You're going to yeah. hit challenges, obstacles, um, and you can frame them however you want. You on this podcast now have, have talked to me and framed those two experiences as like pivotal to getting you to where you want to be today. Yeah. Um, but in that moment, was it the same or how do you, 
how do you sink in there in the in the moment? That's a great question. I I think uh, I've had I mean I've had a lot of those. Uh, we've all had a lot of those moments in mm-hmm. our life. I remember my first day of spring break, my senior year. I had applied to four colleges, and I got all four rejection letters on the same day. I was like, "This is the end of the world," mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. this. It's all over. Mm-hmm. A- and then uh, that I don't was like, so messed up. By the way, the little envelopes. Yeah, like just send everyone the same size. Yeah, is that better? I don't but, know. Actually, I have no idea. Not I didn't have any older siblings, so I didn't know the little oh, envelope trick. Know. I was like, maybe is this one? <laughs> they were all <laughs> no. little envelopes. There was nothing uh, worse. No, it's oh, brutal, man. Oh, it's so brutal. But I think, I think, yeah. To some, I mean, I think there's no. I think it's probably unhealthy to just simply straight up avoid the feeling of of sadness and immediately go to reframing. And I think I've had that tendency before of like skip the hard part, like skip the hurt and jump right into like, let's figure out the positive thing. And I think you, that'll come back to haunt you at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, so more recently, like, yeah, letting myself feel angry or sad is, I think that's very acceptable and, and necessary. Um, I'm still not very good at it, but like, I can I recognize the value of allowing myself to feel sad about something in the world or angry about something. Um, I think the thing that I, I do practice is the reframing of then what do I get to do now? You know, because for everything that, that dies, there's an opportunity for a regrowth and for everything that we get said no to and everything that we actively say no to creates an opportunity for yes. And, and I think that's been the experience of my life is like, oh, this thing ended, but now I get to do this thing. Um, and maybe I wanted to do this thing, but this thing, you know, it, it's always the other stuff in my life that have happened that have fed the real stuff. So like in college, you know, the, the other stuff I did outside of the traditional like straight up academics or sports, but it was like starting a kindness club in my college. It was improv. It was acapella. It was like the other things that I did that truly have fed my skill set skill set today um and so i i just really believe as i reflect back on my life it's, it's been all of the things that have redirected me you know the rejections have just been the redirections towards like things that i've invested in that have turned into the foundation of the good stuff of my life so uh, i think i get to that place pretty quickly and um, you know, if we can be in a space where that's like joyful because it's creative, that's fun. It's like, yeah, I lost a thing, but now I get to like create now, you know, that gives me space to create. It's really interesting because the Helga story, the first time I heard it and we talked about it a little bit here, but there's like, I, I never recognized the difference between feeling an emotion and taking an action. And I know those are very different things, but mm-hmm. meaning, um, you know, seeing someone and seeing someone cry and feeling sad yourself and feeling maybe sorry or, or whatever that emotion is, uh, but not, not, not having any idea what action you take on that emotion. Um, and I think that goes into what you're saying now too, is like, okay, if you, if you feel rejected or, or, um, like you failed or anything, you might feel sad and angry. And, and a, a lot of times you might not know exactly what the action is. You know, mm. but that it's that reframing, like being like, okay, actually, it's okay to feel sad right now. Something sad happened, so I feel sad. That's okay. Yeah. Now, as this, as I can be here and be with this, and as this um, 
time goes on, now I can reframe a little bit and decide on the action to take. So it's like a longer timeline, but I feel like heightened emotions, like oftentimes create impulsive action. Oh yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know. You know what? I've, I've felt that a lot in, um, Colin and I, I think both like in our, in our business, when things seem to be going not well, like, oh no, like things, things aren't going well, then it's so easy to abandon the plan Yeah, and be like, you know what? Throw this out the the window. Let's try this now. You know, let's, let's move in this direction because you can't really just sink in and be like, okay, that, you know, that maybe this isn't working. Let's, let's take some time and figure out what it is. Um, And and I think it's especially in the comparison era, (laughs) where it's easy to feel a very charged emotion at any time of the day of uh, jealousy or uh, desire to have something else, like making a quick impulse like decision, like, you know what, I need that. Yeah. That's what I need. And obviously commerce relies on that. But um, yeah, I think that that's that, like, trying to understand your emotions in tangible action is really important. Yeah. yeah. We have a lot more options than we've ever had before. It's part of the challenge. Right, it's just like on any given day, we can do more things than we've ever been able to before. Mm-hmm. So either we get overwhelmed and sh- shut down and go into reclusion, uh, or we we end up end up bailing on certain people because we reprioritize. Um, but yeah, I think we live in a in a, a culture that we feel. I think we feel a lot of things on an average day, maybe more than we've ever felt, even if we're perhaps collectively less conscious of it right because we're like busy busyness you know is the convenience to me is the enemy of compassion like when i'm busy i'm not showing up in kindness and and you sort of think about like on the average day the number of feelings that you feel that actually inhibit kindness to me is an interesting sort of like self-exploration like what are the what are the feelings you feel on any given day and how many of them actually lend lend themselves to acting in kindness? It's like if I'm feeling anxious, kindness is harder. If I'm feeling exhausted, kindness is harder. If I'm hungry, if I'm hurt, if I'm busy, if I'm stressed, if I'm you know, all those things, which is why self care becomes so critical, because if you can identify what those are and if you can help alleviate some of your stress or your anxiety or your exhaustion, then you can show up from a very different place. But most people are unconscious to how those feelings drive their actions. And the the question I've started sharing with students and myself and educators is like, is what we're fighting for bigger than our feelings? Because if we're not clear on the answer to that question, then most people live unconsciously based on the way that they feel. However I feel, that's how I'm going to act. Unless, unless I've given myself a really tangible, clear fight Angela Duckworth, who's done all this research on resilience, she's interviewed thousands of resilient people. And the common denominator, the most resilient people are also the most deeply rooted in purpose. They know why they're doing what they're doing. And it makes sense because if I'm really clear on why, mm. then the what becomes easier, when, even when I don't feel like doing the what. We, yeah, we did, we did a whole podcast on Start With Why. Yeah, because when we watched that talk and and read the book, like it just so affected us. Yeah, you know, it's such a deep uh, importance to to understand that within yourself. Yeah. So, w- what are your daily or regular practices to tap into that and understand yourself, your why, 
uh, and even your emotions on a, on a regular basis. Yeah. I mean, my, my why sort of most simply right now is I'm fighting to change the way that we educate people around kindness, empathy, compassion, and love, because I believe that every person on this planet deserves to feel a level of acceptance and safety and hope and kindness and, and lovability in their life. And I think the only pathway to a more loving world is to teach it because love is a skill and it's not a paradigm we operate with in our culture, but I'd like to shift that paradigm. Love isn't a feeling. It's, it's a choice that is exercisable, right? And love looks like lots of little things. Love looks like empathy. It looks like vulnerability. It looks like kindness. It looks like commitment. It looks like patience. It looks like humility. And, and unless we teach those things explicitly, then we're going to continue to operate in a world where we know love is a good thing, but we're not good at it. So my, my fight and, you know, I've, I've spent time clarifying what that is in my own life so I can articulate it. Um, I also, you know, I can, I can say it in words. I also have a very clear visual of what it looks like in my brain. You know, I can, I can think back to a moment where my heart shifted, my paradigms changed and whenever I'm feeling exhausted or frustrated or like I don't want to do what I'm about to do, I can think back to the moment where my heart changed. And I'm like, okay, this moment was so profound. The tears that came out of my face because something in me changed. I can give that to someone else maybe today. So like that helps me show up. Or I think about moments where kids do come up to me and they're in profound pain. And for whatever reason, a story I shared intersected with one of theirs and they felt a little less alone. And I can picture 10 faces in my brain right now of those kids. That's like, okay, if I need to, like that's fuel in the tank. You know, I can picture my personal relationships. I can picture my mom who went through stage four colon cancer and how she showed up for people and the amount of love that poured into her because she's poured so much into others. It's like, this is why this is important because our whole life is relationships and no one's teaching it very well. And so I'm, I feel fueled by that desire to make sure that we do better for each other because I think we're capable of it. We're just not taught to be competent with it. Uh, and what a miss. It's like what a miss when we have this like educational system where we have an opportunity to teach these skills and help young people be not just competent at math or science, but compassionate. So you've described love on different levels, like, you know, intimate relationships to, um, more, you know, I guess mass communication. Um, how do you, how do you spread or practice empathy and love at scale? How does that, I know you're doing it through education, but how does one do that? Yeah. So like, how do you, how do you impact through love at scale? To me, like this whole idea of, of habit development is super important to me because the research tells us that 45% of our day is built on habit, which is always like a, a weird thing to wrestle with in my brain because if 45% of our day is habit, it means that 45% of our week is habit, which means that 45% of our life is on autopilot. And so I think to myself, you know, when I'm aware of that fact, one of the questions I start to ask me is what percent of that 45% is designed to serve others? Do I have any percent of my 45% to put it differently? Do I have any daily habits of love? 
because I think that the only way that we, you know, to reference Helga again, the only way that we make kindness normal in the world is if we do the hard work to make kindness normal for ourselves. And that's that only that process of becoming love or loving is through consistent, intentional, disciplined action. And I think it's easy when, when you start to use a word like love to get overwhelmed with this, the size of it, right? That's always the problem. I think about the idea of like love. It's like the menu at the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> it's like so big right. that it's, it, it's it, our brain gets overwhelmed. It's a paradox of choice. There's too many choices. So I go, I revert back to the thing I know, which is my to-do list. My to-do list mm. is check-offable. Right? I know how to do the laundry. I know how to finish the dishes. I know how to get to inbox zero. But our to-do list is, uh, is, in my opinion, less important than like that who we want to be list. The hard part about the who we want to be list is that it's more abstract. And it's like such a big concept that we almost always pr- prioritize the to-dos over the to-bes. You're hitting me right now. This is good. <laughs> that just hit me really hard. The... Uh... The to-do list versus the who I want to be list. That yeah. is, that's a really good visual because it's funny. Like sometimes I I look for things to put on my to-do list to check them off, right? <laughs> like you need, you try and find something to get that feeling of productivity. Yeah. Especially if you're like a creator or someone who likes to, you know, work and make things happen. But it's, you're right. It is, it, it, it's also easy for me to prioritize and justify in, in my mind if I do have things on my to-do list and like immediately move away from my practice of self-care. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like so easy to be like, you know what, actually today's a really busy day. I'm just going to drink more coffee and do more of this stuff. And yeah. I don't, that, that's not as important. It's the first thing to go off. Like, you know, and that's something I'm trying to reverse and like really mm-hmm. prioritize. Yeah. I think the guys, the, the yes theory guys um, really, influenced a lot of that for me because we were with them shooting uh at the grand canyon for the will smith jump and that was like crazy day right yeah, like the, yeah. we're all overwhelmed there's like like big productions it's so exciting yeah and i'm like oh man like i everything that i do on a daily basis meditation writing out the out the window right i'm like in a new place i'm just like doing whatever and i go into the trailer at one point um i swing open the door because i'm like okay, I should be like editing or trying to work and do something. Swing open the door and Thomas is sitting in there with his uh, AirPods in meditating. Mm. And everyone else is, everyone else from the team has done something that's clearly a part of their daily routine for themselves. And I was like, wait, I'm not doing any of my own stuff because I'm, I'm out. I'm busy. I'm busy. (laughs) But that prioritization of that, even in the, you know, the craziest settings uh, was a really eye opening to me. Yeah, there's a great article from New York Times that talked about the way that we speak to ourselves, and changing our paradigm from I don't have time to it's not my priority. And what if that's the language you used in Mm -hmm. your head? I don't have time to go to the doctor. My health is not my priority. I don't have time for meditation. Self-care or self-awareness is not my priority. And just by changing the language that we use to speak to ourselves, all of a sudden it's like, oh, that sounds dumber. You know, like that sounds like way worse. So, uh, yeah, I mean, busyness, I I think because we live in a culture that values productivity, let me reverse that, productivity is how we feel valued. Uh, You know, I associate achievement with worthiness, which means like if I'm creating content, then I'm lovable. Uh, 
and and we we drive that message that content is king so hard like what is there any way to reframe that like what if compassion was king and what if like our culture valued compassion at that level where our our list our to-be list was actually the more important thing and it's just i mean the biggest challenge is always you're fighting back against what culture tells you is important and so you have to figure out how you speak to yourself and and you know on the most foundational level it's it's exercise and discipline do i have the discipline to do this thing even when other stuff is is easier more convenient or quote unquote more pressing or more urgent um and i think that's a brilliant example like thomas on one of the biggest days of his life and his career he's in there doing this thing because that's actually the most important and it's just that constant confusion we we live in is is it's a tough battle it's daily that's that's something that's going to stick with me um the like to do versus to be it, it, it's really strong because I think it's so easy for me to come up with a list of things that I want to do in my life. Uh, but only recently have I put the time into figuring out who I want to be mm. and recognizing that that's the thing that's going to stick with me forever. I can, I'll have times of achievement and times of failure, but like whoever I want to be is there throughout both. Yeah. And that, and that, that's something <laughs> I'm I, always here. Yeah. I'm always here. It's, but it's a strange feeling. I mean, um, yeah, I just, I, I had an experience where the first company we had, we, um, you know, it was like so much pent up excitement because uh, we went through this long process of, of uh, the company was acquired and it was like a six month process. And I was so excited for a lot of, you know, reasons of just being excited to have the news out there that this had been an achievement in my life, right? Yeah. And so excited for it. And um, the day comes and there's like an article and it's going around and my high school share, everyone's so excited, right? And I remember going to bed that night being like, my life has changed. Like I, I'm on top of the world. And I fell asleep and I woke up and I remember this weird feeling of like, I'm the same guy. Yeah. <laughs> and I got in my car. Shoot, I'm still yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, and I drove to the same office and I sat in the same chair and I did the same work. Yeah. And I went home at the same, like everything was the same. And I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. I just have to enjoy the day to day process of this. Like the big, the, the, the milestones are not, yep. they're, they're very exciting. And it shows you that you've committed yourself to something. But sure. Outside of that, it's like you're just, you're, you're going to be the same guy <laughs> no matter yep. what. Like you, you achieve something great, and then if you've become who you want to be, then that's that's the exciting part. Yeah. So, so that to do and to be actually is going to stick with me for a long time. That one's really good. Yeah, the, that's my only tattoo. Be oh, is, there it is. Be is greater than do. Now I get it. Yeah. Now Some people it. just think it says be do. That's inaccurate. It, <laughs> it could have said that, and then you could have developed the messaging afterwards, being like, you know what? I it should, had, uh, I've grown into the message yeah. for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think about, you know, we're human beings, not human doings and all that stuff. But yeah, I like I love that old adage, like wherever you go, there you are. And it's like, yeah, the yeah. the relationships you build to with others and yourself at the end of the day is all like we get to take with us and all we hang on. It's the, it's the consistent piece, especially the relationship to ourself. And so back to the 45%, what percent of your daily routine, your daily habit is designed for love. Mm-hmm. You, you talked a little bit about content just now. You know, co- storytelling is a great mechanism to spread a message. Um, you were in theater. 
you do you you now get to act be on camera you get to be in front of uh audiences um is this what you like when you went out to become an actor um was that a, a big dream of yours and do you feel today that you are uh living the dream although maybe not hmm yeah i i think my desire to be an actor was very rooted in a desire to serve myself um not to say that that's everyone's reason for being an actor at all people sure. um, for me i think it was like very much about like me feeling validated or worthy and in having people see me and, and like me or whatever that looked like. Um, so to, to me, this, this feels like a more authentic expression of, of what I want to do. Um, I've, I've grown to sort of hate the concept that like, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. It's like, that's just nonsense. <laughs> it's like, as soon as you figure out what you love to do, you're going to work harder than ever before. Yeah, you're going to do it every minute of the day. Yeah. So we got to figure out how to rephrase that um, because there's a lot of stuff that feels like work. And so, yeah, there are days where it feels like the dream, but almost, yeah, again, to bring it back to relationships, anytime this work feels like the dream is when I have a moment with another human being where I feel like I've made an authentic connection and our stories are intersecting or my story has made this person feel less alone in theirs or something in their brain you know, perspective has shifted. Their awareness has been biggened, and so their life has been made bigger. Um, those are the dream moments. And uh, truly, it's like when I get to do it with people I care about. I did this for, I've spoken at 600 schools, almost all of them alone. And it's, you know, a couple of years in, it became a very lonely gig. And in my sort of desperate pursuit of being successful in it, I also, you know, ruined a lot of relationships in my life ruined ruined a romantic relationship ruined friendships Maybe not ruined but definitely didn't prioritize them and uh yeah it's only been over the past few years where i've like really been like trying to invite people and, and invite myself into working alongside people you know building character strong with john and Lindsay and and getting to work now with esteban and being creative with him and the By the we, way, let's talk about Esteban for a second. Where, where can you check this out on Instagram? Because I think it's so funny, but can you just tell us his Instagram handle so people can check it out? Real Esteban Gast. Okay. Yeah. I'll put that in the description for this podcast. Yeah. Because he's, he's hilarious. <laughs> he opened up one of your like workshops. The, and the event, so yeah. It was so good. It was so funny. And you're in some of those videos. Yeah. He's brilliant. Yeah. And he's... Because again, right? Like this work... if even if just on premise it's a dream it's only feels dreamy to me when i'm when i get to look at someone else and be like this is amazing and like and i look at someone else who's also doing it well and i'm like you're incredible at this mm. like that is my favorite feeling my favorite feeling is like introducing people to people that i know they're going to love and watching that happen is always like way cooler than like even me meeting someone that i care about it's like vi the vicarious joy, you know, in Sanskrit, the word is mudita, mm -hmm. and vicarious joy. Like, I'm happy because you are. That's like, that's the, the only way that that happens is if I'm like around other people. And so we can build empires alone, sure, but like you don't have anyone to look at and be like, wasn't that cool? Mm -hmm. <laughs> totally. So I know that uh, you actually have your community coming over tonight, which is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, But I wanted to end this 
podcast on a story about love. Mm. And when we first sat down right before we recorded, you mentioned to me uh, a story about love. And I feel like that would be a really nice place to um, end. I wanted to to make this episode about love just because I think love comes in so many different shapes and forms, especially a week like this week. Uh, you see one version of it, you know, mm. and uh, there's so many different versions of it. And I've I've learned that over time. And I especially learned that there's a, I believe that there's a gap between people who really want to create something and want to build a business or build a, you know, or build an audience. And there's a gap between that and understanding that that all starts with self. Like under, if you understand yourself, your purpose, your message, have a deep understanding and care a lot about, um, you know, really tapping into what's going on in, inside of you, then you can share it with the world and build something mm-hmm. um, because you develop that bridge of, of empathy and, and, you know, uh, love for the people that you are serving, Yep. you know, through your business or through your content. Yeah. Um, but there's so many different forms of love. And I wanted to hear about this, this story. I told you to hold on before we started recording. Yeah. Uh, well, first to, to address a couple of things you said, which uh, all of them I like. The, the one thing is my mentor, Tyler, he would say like, figure out what you believe to be true before you speak your truth, which is like, yeah, yes. do the work yourself before you get on stage and try to say it to the world. Um, and yeah, like love, especially during this week where we get the commercialized version and it's this heavy focus on the romantic and even some ways promoting the transactional nature of what romantic love looks like. You know, it's like, spend money so you can be in love. <laughs> Um, one of my, one of my big paradigm shifts happened in high school around what love looked like because I was given language. I think language is a a great thing. I love good words because good words clarify complicated ideas in my brain. And, uh, in the English language, we overuse that word love and we use it 10, 20, 30 times a day without even realizing it. And when you think about it, most of the times we use it, we actually describe a whole bunch of different things. Sometimes it's like, I love a friend or I love a parent. I love this. I love breakfast burritos. I love a love show. Yeah, I do love breakfast burritos. <laughs> and isn't it weird in the same day, I can say I love breakfast burritos and I love mom. But same word, different feelings, uh, right, hopefully. And uh, I, I've always liked the Greeks. Or like in the Greek language, they use multiple words for love. Um, storge is the love that we feel towards family or people we consider our family and it's natural affection. Uh, philia is friendship. It's based on commonality. When I, when I discover that we have something in common, I grow to understand you. We talked about empathy earlier and the more I grow to understand you, the more I grow to care about you, which is why our best friends are people that understand us in ways that most people don't. Eros is romantic love. It's a feeling of being attracted to someone. And agape, agape love is unconditional love. It's selfless love. It's love based on a choice. And the more you start to dig into those words, what's sort of profound to me and what I learned in in high school was you look at the first three, storge, philia, eros, and they're all feelings-based. I feel affection towards family. I feel close to friends. I feel attracted to people romantically. And agape is the only one of the four that is not a feeling but a choice. It's the only one of the four that doesn't happen naturally to me. It's something that I must intentionally choose to do. And because I think the vast majority of the ways that we experience love in our culture is feelings-based, I think we unintentionally 
uh, treat love as a feeling. To put it differently, I will love you as long as I feel like it. Mm, good reframe there. Yeah, right? Come in. Come in. We just had a knock at the door. <laughs> it's Thomas. Oh, wow. Greg. Oh, <laughs> Thomas has been involved in two podcasts recording this yes. week. Do you want to you, you yeah, sit come on in. the couch? Yeah, no, please. please. Yeah, please. we're talking yeah. about love, I mean, we're, and we're I love just, you, so yeah, it's we're, appropriate. We're, we're, we're finishing. This is a good um, spontaneous cameo. Yeah. It's kind of random for your audience, I guess. That just keep showing up, but just you know, take a seat. We're talking about love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, just how Thomas, welcome. Yeah, Thomas, welcome. 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 Podcast. I invite myself to podcast. You know, I can't stand people having podcasts without me being there. So that famous uh, movie, Wedding Crashers. Yeah. You're gonna remake it, mm-hmm. but just d- audio version. Just <laughs> podcast crashers. And it's me crashing podcasts. I think it'll be a hit. I, think I can see it box office. Sounds like one million dollars for sure. We were talking about how most of the ways we experience love is feelings based which means I think unintentionally as a culture, we, we treat love as a feeling. Mm-hmm. And the, the way I think about it is like, I'll love you whenever I feel like it. Mm. So use the Helga example and it's like, oh, I'll stop and help you, Helga, if I have time. Mm. If it's convenient, right? I'll be kind to you if you're kind to me first. I'll respect you if we agree, right? Like I'll respect you if we have the same political opinion. I'll respect you if we have the same religious belief. I'll stand up for you or I'll stand up for your rights as long as I don't have to give up any of mine. I'll, I'll love you as long as I feel like it, as long as it's comfortable, convenient, easy. And my mentor, Tyler Derman, he has this beautiful line. He says, a commitment to growth is a commitment to pain, which means anytime we want to get better at anything in our life, it requires us to, to choose something hard, to choose something uncomfortable, unco- awkward, or, or painful. And uh, I always like think about the question in my brain, like if I only go to the gym when I feel like it, how often do I show up? Never. If I only lift weights that feel good or comfortable or convenient, do I get stronger? No. I think one of the biggest barriers in our our world, but particularly our culture around love, is we never bother to have the clarifying conversation of what it means to choose it. And sort of uh, unconsciously in our culture, it's a feeling. Even this week, it's perceived as like this romantic, fluffy, feelings-based thing. But if we only love people when we feel like it, we never get better at love. And so what does it look like to actually choose it? And, you know, I think often about this idea that we live forgettable lives. It's sort of like weird when you think about it, but like how much of our life that we we're going to forget about. And I think by the time you and I die, we're going to remember 1%, less than 1%, but like let's use 1% as an example. And, and the 1% to me in my brain, when you think back to the things you remember most vividly in your life, it's moments where you're made to feel something. Right? Moments where someone's made you feel loved or supported or listened to or celebrated or cared for or held. Moments in your, and the opposite is just as true, you know, like moments in my life where I'm made to feel stupid or disrespected or unworthy or unlovable. Like I remember those people. And I always like think to myself, like, I wish I remembered more, you know, like I wish I remembered more of, of, of what it's like to be a little kid, for example. My favorite memory um, of the only, the handful, get in here, come here. The gang's all here. The gang's all here. 
What's happening, Barry? We're just doing a podcast. Am I interrupting? No. Well, yeah, but we're all here. But now, now it's sort of a thing. Yeah. Just rewind. Just cut this out. He was on a roll, but yeah, you could. You could. Yeah. You know we the understand. story. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The, the I only have a few vivid memories of being a little kid. W- one of them is going to visit my grandma. Because just down the road from my grandma's house, my, my parents had two really good friends. Their names were Rick and Martha. And they owned a really small hotel in this really s- small town. And I could go by myself because it was a small, safe town. I could go over to the hotel and visit. And it was fun to visit the hotel. But the best part was that Rick and Martha had two daughters, Alexis and Lydia. And they were 10 years older than me. Uh, and I thought I had a chance. <laughs> so I would go over and I would force them to sit in their living room and I would tell jokes that I read on the internet the night before and Rick would make hot cocoa with whipped cream on top and after I was done, you know, basically forcibly trying to entertain them, Rick would walk me back to visit with my parents. And Rick uh, is someone I've always looked up to as like a human being, leader, business person. They sold the hotel, he became one of the top 1% real estate agents in the country. Dude was super successful. And uh, back in 2013, he was diagnosed with an aggressive form of brain cancer called glioblastoma. And I hadn't seen Rick for a long time, but I got a chance to visit him over the holidays. And I walk up to his house and uh, Martha, his wife, standing outside. They had just gotten back from the doctors and he hadn't gotten good news. Basically, the, the doctor told Rick he had 100 days. And I walk in and I sit down and Rick's made hot cocoa. And for two hours... He just starts asking me questions about me, like how's speaking going? What are you talking about these days? Love, like what's your definition of that? How are you practicing it? How are your parents? And I always think back to this guy with 100 days left to live and all he wants to know is how I'm doing. To me, one element of love is listening. We've talked about it a lot, like asking great questions, being curious, being so in the pursuit of being interested in others that it doesn't matter how interesting you think you are. And it's the last time I got to see him. Um, three months later, the world lost this really amazing guy. And that day is in my 1%. <laughs> and a week after he passed away, they had his, his celebration of life. And all these people got up on stage and said all these beautiful things about him because he was super involved in everything, right? Successful, rotary, the library, senior citizen center, fundraising committees. And the last people that shared were his two daughters, Alexis and Lydia. And they told a really simple short story about how they both had moved out of their parents' house eight years before their dad had passed away. And how every single day since the day they moved out, in the mail they got a postcard from their dad. If you're doing the math, it's it's over 3,000 postcards each, nearly 6,000 postcards in total. And I guess sometimes the postcards were long, like words of wisdom, all the reasons why he believed in them or loved them. Sometimes they were a lot shorter, things like, pick up the phone when I call you. And I think about the fact that Alexis and Lydia didn't bring up their dad's resume. (laughs) They didn't add up his community service hours and put them up on display. They didn't bring up his like trophies or his awards of which he had a lot. He was super successful. They just brought up his big box of postcards. And I remember thinking to myself, like this is what love is. Love is a massive box of postcards It's a box filled with something that that someone did every day, even in a really small way, to to remind someone else that they were lovable. 
the easiest way I put it in my brain is that love is a practice. And some of the questions I ask myself are like, when did Rick have time to write a postcard? And he didn't. He made time. You know, did Rick always feel like writing a postcard? Of course not. More often than not, he probably chose it because he knew that love required a choice and that the only way we get better at this thing that we know is good but we're not real good at is to like put it into action day in, day out to make it a part of our 45%. So to me, to, to come back to the, the to-do list item, it's always profound for me to, to re- remind myself that actually most of my happens most of my life happens in between the dots on the to-do list. Like most of your life happens in between the 99% that we're going to forget about. Like it's in those moments that we have the capacity to choose how we want to fill this big forgettable life with something that's potentially unforgettable for someone else. Right. That maybe in between all those dots on the to-do list, we write a postcard we make time for who we want to be, which I hope has something to do with love. Wow. I mean, that, that was a great way to end this thing. What a story. What a uh, just like good inspiration to step away from hmm. and understand. I mean, I think the visuals of the to-do list, just the the action of the the postcards the concept of making time rather than having time like mm. all of that is really uh incredibly powerful and i appreciate you sharing that story that's that was a perfect way to end this welcome man we should should someone else interrupt before we end i think we should wait for one more yeah there should be any in. second that's now thomas do you have anything <laughs> that was amazing what a monologue i was just sitting here like <laughs> blown away that was that was really really awesome yeah I'm glad I walked in and heard that. <laughs> I could have heard it on the podcast, but I got it live. For those of you listening, he's snuggling in a chair next to Samir. It's a really <laughs> nice visual. There it is. We're all here together. Thanks, right. man. Houston. Thanks for having me in the great conversation. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. That's it this week for the Colin and Samir podcast. Something that really stuck with me from my conversation with Houston was the concept on focusing more on your who I want to be list rather than your to-do list. I want to recommend that you find some time this week to write down your who I want to be list. Think about the type of person you want to be, write those characteristics down, and think about ways that you can incorporate more of that into your day-to-day life. If you've been enjoying the show, make sure to subscribe and drop us a review. And if you have feedback for us, you can tweet at us at Colin and Samir. Also, if you haven't checked out our YouTube channel, check it out at youtube.com slash Colin and Samira. We have a new video this week that tells our full story. All right, Colin will be back on the next episode right here next Monday on the Colin and Samir podcast.